Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 17, where we talk with Daniel Griffith. Product of seeing nature as not something that we work to optimize harvests, right? But something that we partner with to truly maximize our relationship. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. If you haven't subscribed, please subscribe, share, comment, and leave us a review. We appreciate it. Daniel, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited you're here tonight. Hey, Cal, it's an absolute blessing to be with you. A big, big fan of the podcast and, and your work. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you, Daniel. Daniel, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so our, our, our farm, our operation is, is uh, run by uh, my wife and myself and our uh, three kids. We have three kids, three and under, and they're just absolutely a part of what we do. It's kind of a necessity. We kind of have to bring them wherever we go. <laughs> yes. um, but our farm, our operation is Tim Wildland. Um, we're a 400 acre re a regenerative and emergent conservation landscape um, here in, in the nestled into the Blue Ridge Mountains uh, in central Virginia. Uh, we farm in the eco region we understand to be the Piedmont of the United States. Uh, otherwise said, we live and farm in uh, the microclimate sandwich uh, between the Appalachian Mountains and the Atlantic coast and its coastline. And so it's a very special and very abundant place to be. Um, Timshul Wildland is more or less a project, less of your standard farm. I mean, we, we look like a farm, we smell like a farm, we act like a farm. But uh, our, our mission is to unify both conventional nature conservation and regenerative farming into something that we believe to be exceptionally abundant. Uh, maybe even abundance that could be measured more in terms or maybe defined in more terms of uh, an emergent abundance, basically working with nature to create abundant ecosystems instead of forcing nature uh, into paradigms to hopefully then manufacture abundance. It's just a different way of doing it that we really feel comfortable with and, and love. Um, on, our, on our farm, in our wildland, um, those two phrases are interchangeable here for this conversation. Uh, we run uh, cattle, pigs, and sheep. Occasionally, we'll do seasonal chickens, turkeys, and ducks. We have about an acre of uh, veggie gardening uh, and about that much uh, land dedicated to food forest, uh, berry guilds, and, and things like that, all more for homestead use. Um, the drivers of ecosystem succession on our farm, really the foundation of what we do is our cattle. We raise 100% grass-born, fed, and finished heritage beef um, for our community and a couple regional, national-type buyers um, that we're just blessed to be uh, partnered with. Our cattle breed is something that we really have fallen in love with. It's a traditional Irish Dexter. It's a heritage breed out of Northern Ireland known for oh, its okay. uh, thriftiness. It's docile uh, in, in many ways in terms of temperament. Uh, but a very hardy breed that um, really thrives in this landscape, which is what we're looking for. We have maybe a hundred head of those of our Irish Dexters, and 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 love that system. Um, the the pigs we have on farm, they're uh, registered GOS Gloucestershire Old Spot pigs. We actually uh, accidentally stumbled upon a boar that is now on our farm that we use. He's our wonderful boar. His name is Sam Hamilton. 
named after John Steinbeck's <laughs> character in East of Eden, who are literary buffs here. Uh, but he's actually registered in the UK uh, as a GOS pig, and so he's actually decently a you know a special pig here. Not that we were going for breed genetics, but uh, that's just what we happened upon, and we love him to death. We'll we'll raise 100 to 200 pigs a year here on the farm. Uh, they're really our movers and our shakers uh, in terms of emergent abundance. What they're doing is foraging through the woodlands, the shrublands, the civil pastures, the grasslands, the riparian areas, really wherever we need that impact to uh, really reset ecosystem succession and maybe divert it to go down a different path. And so we're really using them for the ecosystem succession, less for the pork, but hey, who doesn't like bacon uh, in the process of regenerating a, an, an environment? <laughs> right. So, and then the sheep just follow us, follow the cows. Uh, we really actually run the sheep with the cows. Uh, more or less nine days out of 10, they'll be with the cows grazing in what we would understand to be a flurd, flock of sheep, herd of cattle, put together flurd as uh, the terminology we, we would use. Um, but yeah, that, that's just a, the high level bird's eye view of, of the wildland here. Um, it's, it's a blessing to be a, a part of such a paradigm challenging project that at the same time feels, tastes, smells uh, like a farmed environment. So it's, it's a really special place to be. Now, on your journey to get to where you are today, how did that look? Do you have a background with livestock? Did you grow up on a farm? And then how did you get to this emergent abundance? Yeah, now that's the question. Um, the, the answer to that question is no, not, not at all. Uh, I have no background in farming. None of my relatives, none of my family members are farmers. Um, I would probably venture to guess that the closest relative that I have to be a farmer would be my great grandfather. And, uh, and, and, and he was more of a subsistence okay. homesteader type farmer, if I understand the, the family lineage there. And so, no, I, I don't come from a family uh, farming background and I have almost no experience with managing livestock of any kind uh, before we got into farming about seven years ago. Uh, I was in college for computer science, information systems and mathematics graduated uh, with all of those degrees, thought I was going into the tech field. That, that drive was, was really founded in, uh, my, my dad is a serial entrepreneur, started many companies during our, our childhood. I'm a second son of four children. Uh, and we all worked in like the family businesses growing up, just learning different trades and you know how business works and getting some experience. And I always gravitated to his uh, tech firm, software firm, website design and, and stuff like that. And so I went to college fully expecting a life in that field. And then about, what was it? At the end of my freshman year, uh, pushing a lot of details aside because we can have a five-hour conversation about this alone. Um, oh, yes. I was diagnosed with uh, a good number of different, I always say life-threatening diseases. Um, and, and it really forced my life to turn. We spent years traveling the country. I dropped out of college. My, mo my mom and I spent years traveling the country, I should say, going to doctors, surgeries, tests, procedures, uh, spent you know many days in hospitals and just trying everything we possibly could to understand exactly what was going on in my body and what, we, what do we need to do to like, you know, thwart it from really, really actually impacting or ending a life. Um, and about three years into the journey, we tried everything from Western medicine, Eastern medicine, acupuncture to, you know, surgeries and, and everything in between. And uh, I really was no better. Uh, and I was married to my wife. 
by this time and she was working full time and I was more or less a vegetable. We were both living at my parents, at my childhood home, my parents' house. Uh, we really didn't have another option. I needed that much care. And uh, I was sitting on the back porch uh, in the middle of the afternoon. It was a spring day, maybe March, maybe maybe just getting into April. And I was sitting back in the back porch with the fire, kind of watching spring progress. And uh, and I was reading a book, and my mom came out of the back door, the back you know patio door, and she looked at me, and she had a tear in her eye. And I'll never, never forget this moment. Um, and, and I looked at her, I said, mom, what's wrong? And she said, um, Daniel, we've tried everything. We, we've, we've tried just, there's nothing left to try. We've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, you know, doing what we're being told needs to be done for your health, but you're no better. What if we tried something else? The only thing we haven't tried is raising chickens. Why don't we just try this? And, and it was a moment of desperation, but it was also a moment of great hope. Because that same day, we went on Murray McMurray's website. We bought 100 black Australorp chickens. We didn't know a single thing about raising chickens. Oh, yes. We didn't have, you know, chicken tractors or mobile coops. We didn't even understand the difference between a chicken tractor and a mobile coop, between pasture-raise and free-range, and what kind of feed we needed to give to them. We knew very little to nothing. Uh, but it, it was a spark of hope that inspired uh, a pretty long-term journey uh, into where we are today, running and managing a multi-species, large-scale operation uh, of our own uh, full-time. And, and so that, that, that was our journey into regenerative agriculture. Began in pain, moments of hope, and just, just uh, exploded into abundance. Uh, excuse me, where we are today in 2021. Very good, very good. So you got these chickens... Yeah. When did you branch out into beef cattle and your sheep and hogs? Yeah, that's a good question. The first, the first year we raised those 100 chickens, and we, uh, we, we ran a pretty intensive garden. I, I wouldn't call it a market garden uh, in any way, but we really obtained most of our veggie uh, foodstuffs uh, from it that year. And we, we, we liked it, but what became quickly apparent was I'm not a gardener. Oh, I, yes. I really gravitated more towards the animal side of farming. My, my wife, Morgan, she is a better gardener than I am. Um, but I'll tell you, I can pull weeds for about three minutes and then I'm done. I got to move on. I just can't. <laughs> I can't do it. And so we, we started working uh, with a friend of ours who owned, uh, and they still own, but they, they run a pretty great um, grass-fed and finished um, grass farm near us. About I think they have about 200, 250 head of cattle. Oh, yes. Um, really got our feet wet there. They in they they told us what to do and and they even were patient enough to uh watch us fail a couple times um <laughs> and uh and and we fell in love with the animal side of that especially the larger ruminant side uh there their their farms royal fair farm in northeast ohio great people mentors of ours today um really just family or friends uh at this point they're 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 marvelous um but anyways that that's where really a love for larger ruminants uh, began and, and, and started to swell in us. Uh, it, it wasn't until 2000, oh, I don't know, 2016, I think, uh, is when we got our first herd. We actually owned a herd and, and we began by getting cow-calf pairs and started, you know, actually breeding our own cattle here on this farm. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's been an explosion since. Pigs, I, I have to say, I know we're going to talk about the book later in this, uh, but there's a chapter in the book that talks about why we got sheep and why we got pigs. Um, and, it, and it more or less was an accident. Um, we, we, when we 
started really managing this farm holistically, um, we, we, we've, we found that a good majority of the farm landscape was, uh, especially the pasture landscape, was um, dominated by uh, cool season, non-palatable forages, okay. broad-leafed weeds and, and things like that. And our cattle just wouldn't eat it. And we ran them really hard. I'm talking 300,000 pounds an acre, you know, moving them one, two, three times a day. And they would just literally walk around these particular forages. Like they just wanted nothing to do with it. And so we increased herd density. We, we, I mean, we just, we did a lot of things trying to get them to really impact those forages, really trample them down to see what would emerge the following season or even the following, you know, period after the recovery you know, 30, 60, 90 days later, depending on exactly when we were in the, in the growing season. And they still just, they would just walk around these plants. And a neighbor of ours told us that pigs really like these plants. So we bought a bunch of pigs and, and <laughs> put them in the pastures trying to see if they would root them up, but they did. They would forage around these plants. Um, and uh, and I'll, I'll let you read the book and, and, and get more of the nuance and, and poetry of the thing, just watching these pigs just like burrowing and burrowing and burrowing and then they just go right around the plant as if it's like a like a like a traffic cone on a highway <laughs> um and so another one of our neighbors was like hey daniel listen sheep are browsers like a sheep probably would love you know this plant or this grouping of plants and uh so we we drove down to north carolina about six hours south and bought 10 sheep and we we're like okay we got this right we're going to start devouring this plant now <laughs> we got cattle we got pigs maybe the sheep are going to do it and the sheep didn't even touch it. Like it, it was worse than the cows. They just wanted nothing to do with the plant. It's not toxic, right? There's, there's no uh, extreme phytochemicals or secondary compounds that would threaten a uh, ruminant or foraging animal, uh, foraging omnivore from really consuming the plant. There was just something that was in the plant that none of these animals wanted uh, or wanted anything to do with, I should say it that way. And so we kind of just stepped back, and this is the point of that chapter. And again, I'll let you read it. I won't spoil it. Uh, but we stepped back, and we looked at all the animals we had, and we were just like, okay, cool. Now we have the animals on farm. Let's, let's change, uh, change focus, reshift, or realign our context or our decisions with our context and, um, and, and emerge from here. And so now you know, we have hundreds of cows, 100, 200 pigs, and a whole bunch of sheep. It was an accident. I guess that's a better answer. Totally on accident. <laughs> we got into pig and sheep. On your cattle, you started with cow-calf. Did you go buy cow-calf pairs or cows at a cell barn, or did you immediately get into the Irish Dexters? Let's see. So we, we, we started with Irish Dexters. Oh, we, yes. That was the uh, breed, that rural fair farm in northeast Ohio, uh, the farm where we really got our feet wet or, you know, shitty, whatever you want to say. <laughs> right. Um, and... Uh, and uh, um, and we, we fell in love with the breed. We, it's, it's a really special breed in, in the sense that, you know, we always tell folks, we give wildland tours all the time here. It's pretty much a part-time job is giving these wildland tours to uh, guests of the, of the farm here. And every tour we ever give, we always tell people that Irish Dexters have some of the best meat in the world. And, and that's not unqualified. That, that really is really true. And worldwide taste studies, Irish Dexters are ranked either second or third in terms of tenderness and marbling and, and flavor, deep, rich, unbelievable flavor. Um, and so we say, hey, listen, Iris Dexters, these cows standing in front of you have some of the best beef in the world because they've never been bred for beef production, right? right. Nature knows best. If we just keep these cattle genetics straight line through and through with a bovine, right? The ancient 
um, really form and function genetics and, and epigenetics as it should be, what comes out of this is really actually unbelievable. By pushing for hardiness and adaption to landscape, not how fast a cow can grow, uh, you really find that the abundance is much further on the one side than the other. Um, well, anyways, we fell in love with the Irish Dexters. Uh, they're also a smaller cow. Um, you know, our hang weights on steers will range from 375 to 500 pound hang weights. Okay. So they're, they're, they're decently small. Uh, but we, we love that because they're really easy to handle. Uh, my wife and I can, you know, be really more relaxed or calm around all of our animals, bulls included. We have three kids, three and under, and, um, and it's just a little bit nicer to have a kid next to a 500 pound animal or six, seven, 800 pound animal, not a 14 to 1800 pound, you know, Angus bull or something. So it's just, it's a different feeling around these animals than around just massive cattle. And so we fell in love with them there. And then the first animals we bought, we bought 12 cow calf pairs from a farm actually in Southern Ohio. Uh, the husband had cancer. It was more of a homestead, uh, grass-fed operation, and they just wanted to vacate their herd. They wanted to move on in life and take care of their own health. And so we came in. We bought all 12. Um, I think we bought 10 bred cows. Uh, maybe there was a heifer in there. Um, and then a couple calves came with it. And anyways, we ended up within you know a month or two of purchasing the cows with 12 cows and calves, so cow-calf pairs. Um, and we started the herd that way. Since, since then, we've acquired a good number of animals just by traveling around the country, buying different, you know, uh, bulls or heifers um, or, or cows just from different farms where we like the genetics or we really like the management. You know, I'll make that note here. I think it's really important when you're talking about building a herd uh, to look more at the management that they come out of than the actual genetics. I mean, I've spent $2,000 on a perfectly pristine genetic bull that was, you know, from a registry perspective, the best bull east of the Mississippi in terms of Irish Dexter cattle genetics. We got him here and two weeks later, he suffered from two different hooves or two different of his hooves had massive, massive hoof rot. Oh no! Uh, so he was struggling with these really probably benign uh, illnesses that when he came over, he was stressed and just a different you know, management style and everything else just pushed them over the edge. The, the point is, you know, not so much to dive into hoof rock is a very depressing, you know, subject. And sm um, smelly. Yeah, and horribly smelly, <laughs> um, especially in cattle. Oh, yes. I mean, if, if a cow has hoof rot, it's bad. Oh, it is. It's really bad. Um, but the, the point is, we want Irish Dexters, but the best cows we have are the unregistered Irish Dexters who came from really intensive multi-species, truly regenerative and holistically managed grass farms, not, you know, the really pristine genetic bull, right, with the pristine uh, registry. Not that you can't have both. In fact, one of our missions is to actually create both, right? Take the registered animals, really adapt them to our landscape, and then we have both, right? right? That's, that's right. the best of both worlds, obviously. Nothing against registries. It's just... When we're looking at new cattle, we're looking at management, not registries. Management is the key there. And so that's what we've done. We've really traveled up and down the East Coast just buying different Irish textures from farms that we believe are really a very similar farm to ours. At least their management style is the same, right? When we drop a you know, two-strand or one-strand polywire at the end of the day to move them to the next pasture, they're not wondering what is going on, right? They've done this every day in their old farm, and they're going to do this every day on their new farm.
that's uh, that's the most important part is management. I, I think you really strike on an important chord there about management and bringing livestock in that, that can handle what you're doing in your management system. If a cow doesn't meet our management system, we're selling her. Um, we're lazy farmers, so they got to work for us. I don't want to be out there taking care of them all the time, but I do fully agree that management is the key there. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I I always tell folks I'm the laziest <laughs> farmer you'll ever meet. It's just period. End of story. And I'm totally okay with that. Right, right. You know, like I'm I am so happy to be a lazy farmer. There's there's no reason to overwork when the cows are the drivers of ecosystem succession, and and we're just riding the passengers. Yes. Seat, right. We're just directing their energies to a very purposeful end goal destination, if you will, using that analogy. But like I ain't driving. I can take a nap. Right. <laughs> right. The cow it it needs to work. Um, I love I love that analogy. Yes, but it's true. I'm a lazy farmer. I like it. Very good. Now you you brought in on accident trying to to control some of your ecosystem there and your plants. You brought in the hogs and you brought in the sheep. What changes did you notice in your environment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so what what changes did we notice or observe? Uh, when we really got our numbers on our farm in terms of the number of species, the different uh, species operating in the farm, but also just more animals of each species on the farm. I mean, first and foremost, life returned, right? I mean, I think every regenerative farmer has a journey into that regenerative phase of, of, of their farming life when they really actually can see. And sometimes it's, you know, it happens on a Tuesday and it wasn't there on a Monday. But you, you see this life return, right? The, the dung beetles come and they colonize the manure patties out of nowhere, right? Like, where did these beetles come from, right? They were not here on Monday. They are now here on Tuesday, right? And then the flies come and then the birds come, right? And then the grasshoppers come and then the, the spiders come to eat the grasshoppers or whatever relationship they have, right? And then the ticks come. In this area of the world, it's just infatuated with ticks or infiltrated by ticks, I should say. But then what you'll notice is, and, and by the way, I'm completely okay with ticks. I'll be the probably your, your only guest ever to say that. <laughs> um, what we have found is the more ticks we have in a pasture, like when we're moving our cattle, our pigs and our sheep through a particular pasture, right, the forage is two, three feet high. And so we're walking through there with poly wires and stepping posts, right? And the grass is just hitting our chest and there's ticks all, all over our bodies. In the beginning, we were just, crazy worried about the thing today what we found is those same pastures we're actually seeing less ticks and more spiders right and so the spiders are actually coming in to predate on the ticks we're having less ticks but the spiders and what they're doing for the pastures are simply unbelievable right and so our story in trying to control a particular weed is really now told via the very emergent abundance of life returning to our farm in terms of pasture diversity Oh, and yes. it's not just grass diversity or soil organism diversity. It's the diversity of all life. Like, you know, another big thing for us is we love fly season. Cat, when the flies come and attack our cows, like a huge smile comes on my face. Because that same day, hundreds upon hundreds, if not thousands or hundreds of thousands, the whole sky just turns black of tree swallows and barn swallows and, and starlings. And they're just flying around the herd. And it, it's marvelous. It's beautiful. Right. That is, in, in many ways, a very resilient ecosystem. Right. And my job is to push or at least co-pilot the push of emergent ecosystems turning into resilient ecosystems. 
right? Um, we always say, what is it? Resilience is diversity in motion, right? Yeah. It's always moving forward. That is resilient, but it's diversity. It's the uniform diversity of all life pushing forward in a particular environment that then gives resilience. So I love fly season. I love tick season. That means more birds, more spiders. Um, but on another side, right, getting off of the insect and, and aviation type life, um, what we found is our pastures are uh, in, well, let me start over and say it this way. Every single year since we got the right number of animals on our place and really started to understand what is holistic management and how to manage this landscape holistically, we have watched the pastures evolve year over year um, in terms of the stand and its makeup. So when we first moved down, it was just pretty much you had your weeds, you had your toxic weeds, and then you had your tall fescue. The second year, we started to see some toxic weeds recede, and we started to see some orchard grass come, and we were very excited. We're not big fans of, of tall fescue. It's very hot here, 90 to 100 degrees for many months in the summertime here in central Virginia. Endophyte, um, what is that? Fescue toxicosis, I guess, is, is the technical term for uh, fescue poisoning in, in cattle in the summer months. Uh, so the orchard grass started to come. We got very excited about that. Another great cool season forage. But today, um, like the book, and I keep mentioning the book, and I know we're going to get to it, but the book is titled Wildlife Flowers because, when I, again, when we give wildlife tours, we always say that our pastures, they're really not pastures because they're not grasslands. They're like wildflower lands, right? We have so many species of wildflowers popping up in our in our pastures spring, summer, and fall that, like, you can't take a picture of cows or sheep grazing or pigs foraging in a pasture without the entire picture just being this wild uh, wildflower canopy above a grassland and it's just absolutely gorgeous um, from ironweed to milkweeds to crown beard and, and everything in between cool season warm season different wildflowers um black-eyed susans that's that's my daughter elowen's yeah, favorite favorite she's three and a half she loves black -eyed susans um but anyways, just life return, life abundant in a very uniform diversity return to our farm. And, and now, right, I look back at that time, and this is what that one chapter is about, where I describe these, this, this, this flow of life returning back to our farm. I look back and I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled the cattle and the pigs and the sheep didn't touch this weed. It's one of my favorite plants in our pastures today. That weed is actually crown beard. And the autumn is just this beautiful golden, more like goldenrod. Um, just all over the pastures. It's gorgeous. It's just absolutely gorgeous. Very good. I want to talk, before we go ahead and get to the overgrazing section, let's talk a little bit about your management of your livestock. So when we look at your management of your livestock, are you, are you moving them often? Uh, you're using electric fence. How's that working? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and, and, and so maybe now is a good time to insert uh, my wife and I, we, we, we run Timshall Wildland. We've made that known. Uh, we are also the director and co-director, my wife Morgan and I, of the Rabinia Institute, um, which is the Savory Institute's hub in the Virginia eco-region. And so we work with Savory, Alan Savory and his team at the Savory Institute, Zimbabwe and Boulder, Colorado, um, to teach and, 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 and really advocate what is holistic management. And, and so when we're talking about how we manage our animals, it really is holistic management, and, and we found that to be um, not just a very uh, practical 
management system, a, a paradigm for uh, a, really a decision-making framework. I shouldn't call it a paradigm, but it's decision-making framework for managing complexity, right? Which anybody listening to this podcast who's ever looked at a cow or managed a cow understand that it's complex, it's not complicated, right? A machine engine, a diesel engine in your tractor is complicated. You can break that down into many different parts. Whereas a cow in its relationship to its ecosystem or its environment, that's very complex, right? You can't break that down in the same sort of way. Therefore, you're looking more at aspects, not parts. A diesel engine has parts, cows have aspects. Holes within holes is how that's described in holistic management. And so when we're looking to manage any sort of environment that, that, that we have, either leased land or deeded land, uh, we, we typically, at the very beginning of it, start with a holistic context, which is a definition on paper of exactly how we envision the future and how we need to live today in order to make that happen in terms not of goals, more of visions. Um, and, and once that's put in place, right, you're, you're able to elucidate, you're able to define in that holistic context um, what you're really at the core of your your farm business or your relationship with the farm or your understanding of ecosystem process or environments, you know, where you're trying to get to, right? Are you a cow-calf operation that sells breeding stock to other farms? Are you a cow-calf operation that sells your, you know, calves off to the market? Are you a local grass-fed and finished farm going to the farmer's market, right? All of those different farm businesses or visions, if you will, require a very different context, right? If you're sending your calves down to the feed the uh, the local market, you probably don't care if they their beef is overly marbled or not. But if you're selling at the farmer's market where you're looking at your customers face to face and they're looking at the ribeyes or the sirloins or the New York strips or the porterhouse steaks right in front of you, right? And they look at it and there's no marbling and let's say they know beef, they're going to look at you and say this beef's worthless. Or maybe they buy it and then they taste it and it tastes no good, right? You just, the point is exactly where you see your environment going is, is how you need to manage it. Or maybe... The way that you want your environment to go is how you need to manage it. Maybe yes. that's better said. The point of saying all of that is to say this. After you focus on crafting your holistic context, we work at creating a holistic plan grazing chart. That chart is created by the Savory Institute. We have found it's the absolute best way for managing complexity. That's what that chart's all about. And, um, you know, you work through the chart to understand exactly how you really do need to move your animals through a system. That system would be our farm in this case um, to maximize not only what we understand our context to be right, but the necessary ecosystem processes, water cycle, mineral cycle, community dynamics, energy flowing through the system, the diversity that I'm talking about reaching that max emergent abundant phase. Um, you know, so you learn how to do those things via your animals or via whatever you're managing. In this case, it is animals. Um, a lot of complexity there, maybe not exactly what you're asking, but I'll, I'll answer your question simply with this. That holistic plan grazing chart tells us exactly how to move our animals, not how. It, uh, it, it, it really elucidates for us why we get our animals here right? When we move them there, how do we want their behavior to be when they get there, right? In which sequence do they arrive there? Do you put the pigs in front of the cattle, the cattle in front of the pigs, right? Sometimes you do one and sometimes you do the other, but it's about managing complexity. That, that's what it's all about. And so in order to do that, sometimes we move our cows two, three times a day. Sometimes we leave them in, a, in an area for three days straight. Uh, you know, different examples 
uh, might make this a little bit more clear. If we're grazing a grassland that we want very uniform ecosystem disturbance, you know, we'll graze them at half day or one day intervals at the same paddock uh, dimensions and, and, and uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So they're, they're moving uh, levelly through a landscape. If we're going through a landscape that we know, and let's say we're, you know, early April grazing in an in, in ecosystem that we know has a lot of toxic cool season forages in it, right? We don't want to allow those cool season forages to emerge in mid to late May, if not early June. And so we really might just set stock them there for three days, really turn that area into a mud puddle to one, you know, thwart the toxic forages from sprouting and emerging so that we have the ability to graze that or regraze that area in June or July. Uh, or we might come back and uh, broadcast seed or bale graze it right there and allow the seeds and the hay to sprout in that very open and receptive environment. And so when we're talking about management, we use polywire and, and step-in posts, right? Like most grass farmer regenerative rotational grazing uh, folks out there. But how long or why or how we are grazing in a particular spot is, is really open for debate on what that spot needs or what our cattle need. Um, sometimes it's once a day, sometimes it's three times a day, sometimes it's once every three days. Right, and and that makes sense. Does, does that answer your yes, question? Yes, that, that, that makes sense because it's really um, what your vision is for what you're doing there, and you're going to modify your your management practices at that point based upon where you're going. Yeah, and, and where you want the environment to go, right? Yes. I mean, simply moving your cows to the next paddock on, the, you know, on Monday and then the next paddock on Tuesday because <laughs> somebody told you on YouTube that you're supposed to move your yes. cows every day, right? That, that's accidental abundance. Oh, yes. If, if you actually are regenerating, you're regenerating because YouTube told you to, right? Um, and, and not that moving your cows, that's a great start, right? right? There's, there's Farms are complex environments they're complex things and, and all life is complex and all the relationships within life and with the within the farm are equally or even increasingly complex and so learning how to sit in the driver's seat right to steer or to guide the drivers of ecosystem succession to a state of truly emergent and just immaculate abundance right that is as much a science as it is an art um, and, and so how you get there is is open for every journey Simply moving your animals is great. Start there. That's oh, what we yes. did. We started moving them every day because that's what Joel Salatin said in all the books we read, you know. And, uh, you know, Salatin and I are good good friends, and, and I still agree with that. Like, that's a wonderful place to start. But then start to read your animals, right? Start to read your farm business. Start to read your environment and understand that sometimes you need to move them twice a day. Right. Sometimes you need to move them a little bit more slowly. Sometimes they're calfing and you weren't expecting them to calf. They might be a little bit early. They might be a little bit late. Maybe they got bread and you didn't understand it or mean to. And, you know, it's 95 degrees tomorrow and you're going to move them to a completely open pasture that has no tree cover. But like, hey, why not calf in the shade? Today you have shade. Leave them in that spot. Right. right? Shade is more important than forage. Forage is not always the ultimate goal. And so. You know, every every day is a decision. And, and, and talking about being lazy farmers, just bringing this full circle, um, it is marvelous to wake up in the morning, right, to go out to see the cows and, and look at them and ask, right? Just walk up to a cow and just look at it and be like, are you hungry? Like, do you need to move? Right? And, and learn. And, and I'm not just saying some, like, you know, hokey pokey kind of stuff. Like, have a relationship with your animals. Yes. 
but learn about body condition and, and the telltale signs of an animal being hungry or full or whatever. And, and understand that like maybe the best part of rotational grazing and the best part of regenerative agriculture in this moment is to not do anything. Right. Don't do anything. Just just be. Just relax. Just understand that sometimes staying in place is the best place to be. Um, and, and so it's a very fun. It's a very flexible. It's a very dynamic management style that allows us to be wherever we need to be in order to reach our goals. And goals is a problematic word. I probably should say in order to reach the future that we're trying to create right in our holistic context, which is not a goal. Yeah, it's fun. It's complex. It's managing complexity. It's really partnering with complexity, which we really love. Uh, that's the, our favorite part of, of the farming system. Very good. You said a lot there that, you know, there's so much to the art of it. And it's not just you're following this recipe. There's There's a lot to it. Yeah, most definitely. Daniel, let's move to our overgrazing section. For everyone out there, it's a new section we're trying on the podcast where we take a deeper dive into a practice or something of our guests. And today we're going to talk about a book coming out from Daniel. Daniel, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, I would love to. So I, I, I just wrote and published. It's uh, up for pre-orders um, starting Monday, uh, what is it, February 15th, I believe. It's a book called Wildlife Flowers, The Restoration of Relationship Through Regeneration. And in many ways, uh, it really is a book about regenerative agriculture gone wild. Uh, we really like that description of the book in the sense that it, it, it's about regenerative agriculture, yes. Um, that, that's true. But it's also about a, a viewing agriculture in the same way that we view wild environments, environments that we seek to conserve and to protect and go hiking in, not necessarily to drive a tractor through, right? Um, and, and what the book is all about is, is really a moment uh, to stop, to, to sit back, to breathe and to understand that even a farmed environment, um, it, it's more about relationships then it's about practices, right? Having a relationship with your animals is the best way to understand what they need, right? Like we were talking about earlier, just simply moving your cows to the, to a ne to the next day's paddock because it's the next day, right? That's accidental abundance. If abundance occurs, it's just accidental. It's probably a lot better, right, than set stocking, you know, 10 cows in a 30-acre pasture for 30 days and hoping that they feed themselves, right? That's a degenerative environment. That's been proven. Right. We even, don't even have to dive into that. Um, but but a step above rotational grazing in terms of really taking a deep dive into really nurturing a relationship with your farm as a living, breathing um, system that has selfhood in and of itself. Right. Is to stop uh, doing and, and to really start being. And so with, with Wildlife Flowers, it's really a book of short stories and essays. Or maybe it's like a wondrous meditation on sunrises and wildness, wildflowers and walks. Uh, but it, it really is a book about you and, and me and the ecosystem regeneration possible through learning to see the wild gifts um, or the re really the wild opportunities of relationship, right, through regeneration. And so Wildlife Flowers, it, it's a collection of personal reflections from our regenerative wildland that, that utilizes the magical gifts of being, not doing, but being, connection and reciprocity and community 
to really take a deep dive and, and probe the larger concerns of modern and really mainstream regenerative rhetoric. In, in prose, that's a little bit more poetic. It's a very poetic and philosophical read. It's, uh, I really like Doninga Markegaard. Uh, she's a grass farmer out in the uh, San Francisco, California area. Um, she, she described it as, she wrote a blurb, something like, this is not a how-to book, right? This is about something much deeper than that. This is about the, the, the foundational philosophy and, and um, poetry of re the regenerative movement, regenerative agriculture in particular. And so the book is broken out into many different chapters, all chapters that are true stories from our wildland. They're fun. Uh, a lot of people have, have said that they've cried through most of them, so I guess they're deeply emotional. Uh, but they're all intent on, on really showing the abundance that occurs from an emergent perspective when you look at the farm as a relationship, not as a job, right? Like I say in one part, like moving cows, it's not hard. Just ask them to move, walk up to a cow and look at it, right? And be in position enough with that cow, right? Whoever it is, and, and just so that you can look at it and say, like Branya is one of our, one of our cows, just be like Branya come, let's go, follow me, right? And, and, and the crazy thing is they'll listen, right? Cows are not stupid, dumb, mundane creatures, right, that just walk around eating grass all day. They're incredibly living and personable characters that then eat grass all day, right? It's very human of us to believe that somebody who doesn't look like us can't actually be living and have a community in its own sense, have a language in its own sense. And so this book is, is, is also a highlight, is, is also written to highlight the animacy of the natural world. Animacy in terms of, um, you know, there's a chapter of a stone. Like I, 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 I try to write or write the argument that stones are animate, that they're living just as a cow or a carrot is living, right? We also tackle the, the issues of life and death and death and life and how death feeds life and how in order to be fully living, right, we need things to die. And so... There's even some pretty deep analysis of what grief is and and how farmers participate quite fully in that cycle, right? Which really is the regenerative cycle of birth, growth, life, death, decay, and then rebirth, right? And that, that rebirth is really what we're trying to foster in our wildland, right? Even when you're looking at trampling and really severely grazing pastures or even minimally grazing pastures, if you're taking the top third, dependent on your management style, I mean, what you're trying to do is take a living system and reset it and seeing what would come out of that decomposition, right? What is going to be reborn here that is more abundant or taller or, or more nutrient rich or nutrient dense than it was the last time we were here, right? And so you're always pushing for that rebirth, which means you're always pushing for that death, right? Regenerative farming in many ways, it, it's looking to create a very abundant death to then rebirth back into a very, or even increasingly um, abundant life. So I, I could talk all day, but do, do you have any questions for it? I'm, I'm sure I could, you know, ramble on for hours. Well, just a couple of things. And, and one thing's really minor, um, but you have footnotes in there. And um, I have a love of books with footnotes. I want to be able to follow the path. and. And I know that there's people right now saying he's crazy, but I love footnotes. I, you know, um, I want to know where you got that and how it came to. So I really appreciate that part of it. Um, I enjoyed 
you're writing. It reminds me of a book, A Very Small Farm by William Paul Winchester. I believe it was published in like hmm. 1990 or something. And it's he's actually a, a local farmer at the time and he talked about his process. And as I read um, your stories in there and your connection to the land and the relationships, not only your relationships, but relationships of animals to other animals and all. It just reminded me of that book. And that book is one of my favorite books. So I really enjoyed your your writing in it. And Thank you. That's a blessing. When we go back to a, a question rather than me rambling on, um, what's your vision for the book? Yeah, that, that's, the, that's a really good question. Um, I have to be honest, I, I wrote the book in three weeks. I, I had an idea or really a yearning that I feel like I had to get words on the paper. And so that's what I did. I dedicated three weeks um, this past autumn to writing the book. And, and it really was an explosive creative process, if you will. I mean, you write a book in three weeks and um, tell me how that feels. It's it's kind of like an emotional roller coaster. Um, but when I, when I started writing the book and I had the... Uh, first inkling of or first foundational vision of what the book really could become um i, I was overwhelmed because i didn't think that this kind of book would sell uh you know i have thousands of books here in, in my family's library at home and like you know a bunch of farming books yes. i mean a lot of a lot of my friends are you know pretty sophisticated writers here in the farming space and uh, their books are amazing and I never felt like I could write a book that would parallel or equal theirs in terms of worth and value and in what it really gives to the to the reader in terms of truly actually approaching the regenerative movement. Um, and so I started writing a book about our wildland, describing our processes and understandings and philosophies, and I added poetry into the thing. And I'm a big fan of uh, Shakespeare and his plays. And if you've read the book, you I mean, like I think I use Shakespeare like 10 different times in the book to illustrate something in the regenerative movement. Uh, there is one person who read the book that just was like, I learned more about Shakespeare than I did about, um, you know, farming and, and such, which is probably fine. I mean, Shakespeare is a wonderful <laughs> right, thing to learn. Yes. Um, but I wrote the book and, and, and I sent it out. I, I sent it out to like maybe 25 to 30 uh, of the pioneers in the regenerative movement, right? Big names like Joel Salatin and Gabe Brown and Judas Schwartz and Nicole Masters and Nigga Markegaard. I don't know if I said Joel Salatin or not, but Joel Salatin and, and people like that. And I just, you know, sent him an email and said, hey, listen, here's the book. Would you, are you interested in, in reading it and writing a review or a blurb if you feel like it, if you feel like it was good enough to receive it? And uh, and I'll be honest with you, I'll, I'll tell you this completely flat out. I, I didn't think they would even respond to my email. I totally just, you know, I'm a, I've never published um, a book in Regenerative Act before. Um, our, our popularity as, you know, farmers is, is growing, but like, you know, for Joel Salatin to respond in an email to me is still pretty cool. And, um, well, anyways, I sent the book to 25 to 30, let's just use easy math, let's say 25 and, uh, like 23 to 24 of them replied oh, nice. initially. There was only one or two people that didn't, and I'm not even too sure I got their email right. And, uh, and I was like, okay, this is pretty cool. Like this is, this is pretty cool. Um, and then all of the blurbs started to come back and, uh, like Gabe Brown, he wrote a blurb for the book that I still just get like goosebumps when I read it, but like he loved the book. Like he came back and he just, he was so blessed by the book and he loved it. And his blurb is unbelievable. You can read it 
on Amazon or a site wherever you guys buy books. And then Joel Salatin came back and he was like, everybody needs to read this book. I've been struggling with the balance between like Eastern holism and Western reductionist. And like this book is the balance. You could call it a devotional. These are all his words. I'm just reading it. I'm like, oh God, wow, this book is actually. And then Alan Savory, right, the founder of Holistic Management and the Savory Institute, the co-founder of the Savory Institute, and the author of what I believe to be the best book in regenerative ag, Holistic Management, a common sense framework. Um, I can't remember the subtitle, but Holistic Management, the third edition. And he came back and he was like, if there's a poet, or if there's a poet laureate of Holistic Management, his name would be Daniel Griffith. And I <laughs> oh, was wow. like, I don't Very know good. about that. I don't know about that. Um, so anyways, my point is all of these blurbs started to come back in the reviews from all of these people that I would say are my mentors, not my friends in the sense where like, I totally see myself learning from them and, and we're nowhere at the same, you know, playing field. Uh, and they're coming back saying that they're learning stuff in the book. And it, it was a truly humbling and a truly, my goodness, earth shattering or earth shaking in a good way, a positive way experience for us. Um, and, and so what we, we hope this book becomes, right, there's a lot of how-to farming books in this, in this right. movement, the, the rotational grazing, grass farming, regeneration, local food, sustainable agriculture movement. Um, and those books are needed and wonderful, and I have many, and I hold a lot of them dear. This, this is not a, 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 a how-to-farm book. It's absolutely not. This is why we farm. Right, and, and our hope is that by getting all of these great blurbs from the different farmers who ha- all have their own paradigms and practices and, you know, you know, one person might like poly braid, the other person likes poly wire, that's fine, we can have that conversation. But this, this book steps beyond right. that, right? I don't care if you like poly braid, poly wire, you like to step in the post from O'Brien or like to do something else from Premier One, like I don't, I don't care. Um, those are conversations that need had if you, if you want to have them. This, this book is about something entirely different. This is why we farm, right? And how we create or maybe how uh, we, we, we can step back to nurture, right, the gifts that, is all, that, are, that are all around us instead of trying to manufacture in abundance. It, it is not, not about abundance, right? right? Like ever since uh, we started uh, our journey in the farming, like, you know, our hang weights are increasing, right? Our stock density is increasing. We have more forage in the pastures than we, you know, did last year. Um, you know, all of those things are important and we measure all of them. That's, an, that's, that's highly important. Being able to put empirical data behind the regenerative story is, you know, sometimes just as important as the regenerative story. Um, but th- this book steps beyond that, and, it, and it's it's really a why you farm book, why we farm, and so we we hope it inspires some farmers on the edge who are you know questioning whether or not they jump into sustainable or regenerative agriculture, uh, and we we hope that it takes some people already in the movement uh, to that next step. If, if there's a primary audience, I would probably say that's that's this that this group people are already in regenerative ag who are currently rotational grazing and they want to take a moment to stop, to breathe, to relax, right? And, and learn to cultivate community and awareness and observation. Um, and then lastly, you know, conscious consumers looking to understand regenerative farming better. Uh, one blurb came back saying that, you know, there's a lot of people trying to claim or define regenerative uh, in the regenerative movement. And, and this book is, is pretty good at that. Um, you know, there's, that's not the blurb quote right, unquote, right. but 
the point is, you know, we really dive into what regeneration means, which which I think is interesting. To, to me, when when I read the stories, you know, it takes me of that I want to say quote or proverb or, but I can't even think where it came from. But you know, it's not about the destination; it's about your journey. And you're in the farm space, you're wildland. It's the journey of the the whole system, not just your piece of it. It's everything. I, I think it's yeah. a good read. I appreciate that. I, I, I do. So, Daniel, where can people find your book? Yeah, so uh, a lot of different places. Um, right now, we're running three, I'm sorry, we're running pre orders through our site, danielfirthgriffith.com. Um, right there on the homepage, you, there's a link for it. You can click pre order. Uh, we're running the pre orders through our site. Uh, we're actually not going to be running pre orders long. Uh, very soon, within the next couple weeks, if not a month, it will be a live uh, published book uh, that you can buy pretty much anywhere. I mean, Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, Walmart, Target, wherever you buy books online, uh, it'll it'll be there. And it, you can still buy it through our site. We'll make a little bit more money if you do. And so, if you're, you know, a big uh, anti-big tech individual and, and you want to support local, you can always just buy the site. But it, it'll be everywhere. BarnesandNoble.com. There you go. Very good. Well, Daniel, we've gotten to the point in our podcast where we do our famous four questions. It's the four questions we ask of every guest. And I stole that blatantly from the Bigger Pockets podcast. So I hope they don't want that back. But um, <laughs> our, our first question on our famous four is what is your favorite grazing grass related book? Or resource and um, we know it's got to be your book but besides your book what would be your favorite <laughs> and I think you've already said it earlier but go ahead yeah well if if I um, let's see my, my the, a book that I hold dear a book that is always on my desk that I rely on is Alan Savory's uh, holistic management um, I it, it's, it's a book rich in details but also very inspiring um, if I had to step beyond that into something that's kind of within the general sphere of regenerative agriculture or, or regenerative societies or maybe permanent societies, my favorite book of all time would be Aldo Leopold's The Sun County Almanac. Oh, yes. Um, I would highly recommend this book to anybody in the regenerative space. Uh, Aldo Leopold is, in my opinion, the greatest, easily the greatest writer of the 20th century. I will have to add that book to my reading list because I have not read that. It's awesome. I, I encourage everybody to read it. Our second question, what tool could you not live without on your farm? Um, it's funny. We, we were my, my dad and I, my mom and dad, live on the property with us and farm alongside of us. Uh, and, and tonight we were working on a, a project in our barn, and uh, we were using a nail gun. And um, my dad looked at me, and he asked this very question. He said, Daniel, what's the, what's the most important tool we have here? And uh, I, I, you know, I sat back and I thought about. It. I was thinking tractors, or you know, I could be the the smart one and be like, oh, the cow, the cow is the best tool, you know. And 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 I thought about these things. And then he looked at the air compressor, running it, and we have a huge air compressor. Um, and he was like, I think it's the air compressor. And 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 so besides taking the easy bait of you know the cow is our best tool, uh, or maybe like you know holistically managing. Um, is is the most important part i i don't know i think our <laughs> air compressor is used like on a daily level for way too many tasks um so i'm, I'm gonna go with that one 
the air compressor. I can follow <laughs> your argument for that. Now, we have not had any other guests say their air compressor, but I, I can go with that argument. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> what do you know now that you wish you knew when you begin this journey? Hmm. That's a really good question. I'm going to take a pause to make sure that, that what I say is, is undeniably true, because it's an important question. I wish in the beginning that I would have understood that fostering relationships and community in the farm landscape is the most important part. And, and that everything that we want, right, increased hang weights or finishing weights, uh, better breed back percentages, uh, lower calf or lamb or piglet you know, mortalities, uh, better lifestyles, uh, more money in the farm business, right? All of these things, more pastures, uh, more grasses growing in the pastures, right? All, all of these things that we push for, right, are really a product of seeing nature as not something that we work to optimize harvests, right? But something that we partner with to truly maximize our relationship, right? And thereby the communion that flows, not the harvest, but the communion that flows out of that relationship is, it's unbelievably, well, abundant, but not to keep repeating these two words, but emergent, right? Emergence is really describing something that is really non-mathematical, right? Emergence is two plus two equaling 10, not four, but 10 or 12 or 100,000, right? That, that's emergence. Right. And so when you work to and, and when you when you I shouldn't say work, but when when you work to not work. Right. And see the farm and to, as an area, as a canvas to cultivate awareness and relationship, your hang weights increase and the, the forage potential of your pastures increase. Right. And your breed back percentages go from eighty five to ninety nine point nine 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 percent. Right. And all of these things, all of the things that we're pushing for follow when you do the center thing. Right. And the center thing is that community. Right. Is that is that relationship in, in the beginning? I, I was pushing for, you know, do you move your chicken tractors once a day or twice a day? Right. And I thought just by simply moving the chickens more. Right. I was going to do something better. Right. And then we we're like, oh, we got to ferment the chickens feed because yeah, Justin yes. Rhodes said to do this. And we started fermenting the chickens feed and, and it actually was great. It was a great recommendation. I highly recommend if you're doing chickens to ferment the feed. I, I, we love the system, but we were focused on the system, right? The, the, what I'm trying to say here is not to, you know, step back and just be like, I'm lazy. I'm going to sleep in to nine or 10 o'clock and the cows can move themselves. That's not what I'm saying. <clears throat> what I am saying is partner with your cows and see them as living, animate, selfhood having individuals that are different from humans, right? We all have different roles in different contexts, right? We're in the passenger seat. They're the ones driving ecosystem succession. And, and uh, be at peace in that role and see your relationship with the driver, the one that, you know, that's touching the gas pedal and steering wheel as, as one that is built on community, right? Not trying, uh, not via the path of manufacturing abundance um, or, or manufacturing an outcome that was just, you know, not there to begin with or not possible to begin with. Um, so anyways, that, that, that's what I would say. See, seeing the farm as a relationship, not, not as, a, as a system that we need to optimize or maximize. Excellent advice. And our final question of our famous four questions, where can others find out more about you? Yes, so um, a whole plethora of sources. 
Uh, first and foremost, our, our farm or wildland, if you will, uh, our, our site is, um, what is it? Wildtimshel.com. Uh, Timshel, T-I-M-S-H-E-L, Timshel, wildtimshel.com. Uh, there's all sorts of resources and articles, publications, galleries, things like that on the site. Um, we're also highly active on Instagram. Um, I think it's Timshel underscore wildland is our Instagram handle or whatever it's called. Um, our education, consulting, advocacy work uh, that we do via the Savory Institute, uh, that's it's called the Rabinia Institute. Uh, you can find that online, rabiniainstitute.com. Uh, Rabinia is the Latin name for the black locust tree. Just tying that together. Black locust tree is my favorite oh, tree out there. So we, we just call our, our, our educational institute that, the Rabinia Institute. Um, but, I mean... Uh, I'm just going to keep throwing websites at you because there's so many, but danielfirthgriffith.com is kind of the, the foundational center point of it all. You can go there and learn a little bit about me and about the family and what we're doing and the books and the articles and, and, and speaking and such. And it also has links to the farm and the institute and, and things like that. Very good. We will put links to all those sites as well <laughs> as uh, links to purchase your book in the show notes. Hey, I appreciate that. Daniel, we appreciate you coming on to the Grazing Grass podcast. Hey, Cal, it's been my pleasure. You just listened to the Grazing Grass podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. If you're interested in purchasing Daniel's book, we have links in the show notes to purchase from his website. Also, if you pre-order... And you send that receipt to book at wildlikeflowers.com. You'll receive a special gift. I'm, I'm a better writer than, than I am a speaker. And so whenever I'm done with these things, which I never thought when you write a book that everybody would want to talk to you. But I guess everybody wants to talk to you. And I've done way too much talking. And, and I, I always hate after it. You're <laughs> yes. just like, oh, I hate I didn't. I hope I didn't sound like an idiot. I like writing because you can write and then delete if it sounds stupid. Whereas something like this. Anyways, my, my point is thank you for the blessing and the time. I've really enjoyed right, myself. Right. I hope it was uh, yes. educational or inspirational to somebody. And I hope I didn't look like too much of an idiot. But I'm really just one lazy farmer. Farming, too. And I, I don't mean just to take this more comedic section and turn it back into an episode. But, I mean, in, in many ways, that really is what regenerative agriculture or holistic management is all about, right? I mean looking at, at what you have, trying to do your best, and then looking at the earliest feedback loop, right? Really observing, you know, what is coming about due to your management and either re-planning or learning to shift management in a, in a better, more abundant state. That reflection yes. piece is important in so many places. Yes. Just, um, and the problem is, and I'll get on a little soapbox, the problem is we're too busy for that reflection piece. Mm. And you have to stop and have that space so you can reflect. Um, there you can do what you want with that. Yeah. There you go. I loved it. And as always, keep grazing grass. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast helps us grow. 
If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. Until next time, keep on grazing grass.